This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Life is starting to return to normal. And I guess like a lot of normal life, the situation is getting to be confusing and inconsistent. I mean, one thing we had to say about the height of the lockdown, the rules were clear and they applied to everyone except essential workers. Right now, It's too dangerous to have a full slate of parliamentary sessions, but the prime minister can allow and wade into a protest with thousands of demonstrators at close quarters. Houses of worship can operate at 30 percent capacity, presumably indoors with people singing and chanting activities that can spread the virus. But we're not ready for socially distanced patios here in Toronto. We can now have gatherings of 10 people outside with appropriate distancing, but you can't play tennis doubles where people are almost always at least six feet apart. On top of it, there is a huge bit of confusion from the WHO. Yesterday, the organization caused a furor by saying that asymptomatic spread is very rare. Well, Just a few minutes before we went to air, they walked that back and are now claiming that that was just a misunderstanding. So people, if you have questions, let me give you the numbers to call. Hopefully we'll be able to give you some answers. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And right now, I would like to welcome Dr. Alon Vaisman. Hello. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? Good, thank you. So first of all, I'd like to go uh, to this. It was very confusing yesterday when we heard from the WHO uh, saying that asymptomatic spread of the virus was very unusual. And now they seem to have walked that back. That was just breaking news just before noon. Yes. Um, so I think it's important to recognize what, what we mean by asymptomatic individual. So somebody at the moment where you assess them and they test positive for the virus, they could have no symptoms for three reasons. One uh, is that they are pre-symptomatic, so they're about to have symptoms. It's just a day or two away, or on average, at least two or three days away. The second is that they're post-symptomatic, which means they previously had symptoms, but now are resolving. The disease is resolving, and they no longer have symptoms. And three is that they never had symptoms. They're one of the individuals who had the virus but never knew it because they never had symptoms. So you can only know the situation between those three if you look retrospectively. And uh, once you have a positive test and then somebody has symptoms, you just don't know which one of those three individuals you are. So when they were referring to patients who have no symptoms not transmitting the virus, they were more likely referring to the third group who uh, will never have symptoms. And we're not clear about how many of those people can transmit, but we think that's a lower proportion compared to those who are pre-symptomatic, which we do know have a high likelihood of transmitting the virus. I'd like to bring in Dr. Colin Furness, uh, who is an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. And and what do you make of, of the uh, 
WHO first saying that asymptomatic transmission was rare, walking it back today. What's your take on that? Well, I agree with the previous comments that, you know, asymptomatic means a few different things. You know, I would actually add a fourth category, and it's specific to COVID, which is to say they're symptomatic, but the symptoms are invisible. In other words, we've got kids especially whose lungs are full of virus, who have pneumonia in both lungs. They feel fine. Their lungs don't notice that they're under attack, but they're there. That's symptomatic. You see it on a chest x-ray, but when you look at someone, they feel fine. Those are the people we need to be really concerned about because, and I don't care what the WHO says, someone who's got two lungs full of virus is going to be contagious no matter how they feel. So that's the group I'm really worried about, and I think it, it could be that the WHO really did kind of mix their messages and their words about what asymptomatic really means. Dr. Furness, I know that you've been concerned that we are reopening too soon. Do you still feel that way? Most, most definitely. Most definitely. And I'm, I'm glad we're now taking a regional approach in Ontario because Ontario was a, really a combination of opening later than we needed to for much of the province where there is very little COVID and much too early for places where there are, which obviously includes GTA. So there's a few things I'd like to walk back. I'd like to stop recreational shopping. I think that's extremely concerning. And uh, we're losing Dr. Furness. Hello. Okay. Uh, we will have to get him back. Uh, Alon Vaisman, do you think that we are reopening too soon? Uh, the last thing I heard Dr. Furness say was uh, that he wanted to see an end to recreational shopping. Uh, yeah, I think there's certain parts of Ontario which really shouldn't be opening anymore, doing any more that we're doing currently. And that's especially the GTA where the case numbers are still very high from day to day. There's been kind of an up and down trend over the last few weeks, some stabilization but not the decline that we would want to see before we open things up. But there are other sections of Ontario where there is a decline of cases, which it may more make more sense, especially those that are more remote from areas that we are seeing a lot of COVID cases, to start very slowly easing up on some of the restrictions, especially those that won't involve having people from the infected areas come to those areas. So, for example, small family gatherings. That would be quite different to open up in a remote area or in an area that's not affected versus uh, something like a theme park or a large uh, open gathering area like like a park. Uh, it's interesting. Last week, the city released a map of the hardest hit areas, and we saw that they are in lower income areas in the north uh, northwest and the northeast of the city. And uh, there's a lot less in other parts of it. And And I have to tell you that I don't really know anyone who's been affected by the disease, and most of the people that I know also don't, and that's sort of closer in the center of the city. Yes, it was a very important data to be released. Uh, there's, there's several explanations for why that might be, including some that you mentioned, the lower-income areas. Also, they may have less uh, access to health care. They may have more individuals living in one home at one point. Uh, they may have also less access to transportation they may work in certain jobs that may put them on the front lines. So there's a variety of explanations why those individuals are more affected in those neighborhoods. And, you know, more in-depth analysis into those into that will, will be very important to figure out uh, why that is and also how to stop transmission. Uh, we have Dr. Furness back, and I'd just like to correct his title. He is an infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information, 
Welcome back. When we lost you, you were saying that you wanted to see an end to recreational shopping. Yeah, so that's that's some stage one things that I think did not was were not smart, were not well thought out. Um, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see a requirement for masks in stores. Um, that that would be a very helpful thing to do too. Um, the the stage two guideline of people can get together in groups of 10 now, that's a very odd thing to say because you either get together with people indoors or outdoors. So I can go to a park and stay six feet away from dozens or hundreds of people. So we don't call that a gathering, and I'm not sure why, because maybe I don't know their name. But if I know their names, then it can only be 10. Indoors, again, 10 people socially distanced, but I can go shopping where there is no socially distance, uh, social distance, and, and that can be next to dozens or hundreds of people. So the rule seems to depend on whether you know them or not. And what's interesting about that is the evidence we have is that the opposite is safer. Hanging out with people who you do know and trust is safer than going into an environment with a lot of strangers. So the advice we're getting and the rules are actually diametrically opposite to what would keep people safe. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've noticed is that now there are a lot of inconsistencies, and inconsistencies encourage people to break the rules. Uh, you know, so for instance, yes, now as of Friday, we can have gatherings of 10 people. I assume that was outside, but you can't play doubles where you're six feet apart almost all the time. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, and again, the, the what about all those protests? Thousands of people, not a lot of social distancing. We saw some masks, but some not. And houses of worship, I don't think uh, that's even uh, limited to the uh, areas where uh, in stage two, 30% capacity in houses of worship, where you're singing and chanting things that spread the virus. Is it, Does that make sense? It makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. And I do not mean to be disrespectful to houses of worship, but exactly as you say, a group getting together, 30% of a large space would be a lot of people. And the singing and the chanting that is part of uh, religious services for many is very dangerous behavior. No question. No question at all. This doesn't make a lot of sense. Going back to phase one, it doesn't make sense that you can't have your mom over, but you can have your domestic um, uh, house cleaner over. So if you pay your mom five bucks to clean your house, then she can come visit. These guidelines don't make sense. And there's plenty of examples out there in the world, especially in Europe, where they were weeks ahead of us. We could be emulating smart practices instead of inventing ones that are confusing and in many cases, contrary to what's safe. Do you agree, Dr. Baseman? Yeah, I, I think the bottom line is that the government needs to explain what, why these recommendations are they, the way they are. And if there's inconsistency, they need to rectify that. Because as was mentioned, once you have inconsistencies and things that don't make sense, then it just opens the door for people just to violate them and do whatever they want. Also, if you're allowing people to do certain things, doesn't mean people have to do it or that they should do it right away. It should be made clear that we'd still be discouraged from doing some activities, but you know, some are absolutely necessary, or you might highlight some certain activities that would be a little bit more acceptable, like like a funeral, for example, as opposed to getting together in a group of 10 to hang out in somebody's house, you know, if you can at least highlight some, some areas where things are highly discouraged and where those where maybe an exception could be made, that at least people would understand where you're coming from. The more contradictions you have and the more times that you're not very explicit about why you're doing the things you're doing, then people will just violate the rules all over the board.
Well, yeah, now apparently you can have a wedding and a funeral with up to 10 people. Um, and, and again, you know, we saw those demonstrations. I understand the political necessity, you know, not to quash them, but, you know, you're seeing a protest with thousands of people. And then, you know, I go on Twitter and there are all these people saying, maybe we should uh, hold a demonstration on our favorite restaurant patio. It just, uh, it just doesn't look very consistent. And, um, Dr. Furness, I, I was mentioning while we were trying to get you back that in Toronto, there was this data released about the areas that had the most burden of disease, and that's the Northeast and the Northwest, and it's lower income areas where people live closer together, more likely to be in high risk occupations. And meanwhile, in a lot of other places, and this is totally anecdotal, I mean, you don't see much disease and I don't know anyone who's been sick who's a, a kind of a personal friend, and most of the people that I know also don't know anyone. So does would it make sense to, uh, you know, have different rules for different parts of the, GT, the GTA, or is that, I don't know, too discriminatory? Um, that's complicated. Um, I do know people who've had COVID, and not many, but the problem, the problem is it's the, the difference between not knowing people and knowing lots of people or that inflection point where the virus is everywhere, it's, a, it's actually a pretty fine line. So in other words, the fact that a lot of us haven't met someone who's had COVID is not something that should make us feel safe. It should make us feel happy that we avoided a very serious situation that could still recur. In other words, COVID isn't weakening or going away. It's being held at bay and being held at bay successfully. And so I think that's important. Could we do different things in different neighborhoods in Toronto? Potentially, but you start to also get into the, the idea of stigmatization and, and how stigmatization of neighborhoods and also how you would enforce that. And guidelines that you definitely can't enforce are just as bad in some ways as confusing guidelines um, because it encourages people to ignore them. So it would be difficult, I think, logistically. And I'm not sure it would be the best use of resources. And I'm talking to epidemiologists Colin Furness and Dr. Alon Vaisman. And we were talking about mask wearing a little bit beforehand. And last week, I talked to the mayor of Cote St. Luke, which is a suburb of Montreal, and they have made it mandatory in all businesses and in municipal buildings. Here in the GTA, Mayor Patrick Brown says he finds the idea intriguing, doesn't know if he has the power to do that. Some stores are making it mandatory. Some stores make it mandatory, but don't send anyone who doesn't have one away. Um, why is there this hesitation, Alon Vaisman, to just make it a rule? I think from some groups, there might be some hesitation, uh, like the general population, like it's an infringement on their personal space or their uh, freedom. So they, and there also is a lack of familiarity of using masks. Uh, it's quite inconvenient for, for some people to use it. You know, it's an addition to what they do. And people just, they may not generally consider the safety of others as often as we would like them to. But, you know, with COVID, that, that should change everything. Some people also have a hesitation on the from academia and from the science side because the, there isn't hard and fast evidence to suggest that it's effective like we do for other medical interventions. But these concerns, uh, I don't think they're fully justifiable. 
given the low, probably the overall low risk of associated with wearing a mask, it does make sense um, for, for people to wear a mask, especially indoors, even if we don't have very conclusive, hard and fast evidence to, to prove that it's effective. There is still sufficient evidence to show that it is. And even if there is some inconvenience associated with some people using it, I think the overall benefit outweighs any kind of risk or hesitation people might have. Yeah, I thought that there was evidence and, and the places that have done better with this had a lot of mask wearing. And Dr. Furness, I have one question because I, I keep seeing people who have these masks, they're kind of wearing them as chin straps. And I'm assuming that when they're someplace that they can't socially distance, they pull them up. And then if they want to talk or whatever, they pull them down. Does that contaminate the mask if you're wearing a non-medical, you know, uh, uh, disposable mask? If you're in an environment like a hospital where there could be COVID everywhere, it would be concerning behavior. But actually, there is some risk of wearing a mask too much. And that is that you build up bacteria on that mask and you're feeding it you're with your moist breath. You're creating quite a Petri dish that could then um, result in a, in a respiratory infection, a bacterial one. So it would be a bad time to make that happen. So I'm an advocate of wearing a mask indoors, in public, and only then. And taking the mask off or a shirt, pulling it under your chin when you go outside. That's to minimize the extent to which you're breathing through the mask, minimizing it to when it matters, when you are in a position to protect other people, otherwise to not. So the less mask use that you don't need, the better. So if I pull it down to my chin, I'm not contaminating it or anything? Well, if it's a paper mask, let's be clear, you should change it every four hours. And that's important. If it's a cloth mask, um, you should be not just washing it, but boiling it from, from, I'd say, with about four hours, no more than four hours of continuous use. And that's what will keep the mask clean. But in terms of contamination, the only thing, I mean, if you're in a COVID environment, like an ICU in a hospital, that's a very different scenario. But if you're just out and around, um, the contamination that you need to worry about is actually pulling bacteria into that mask by wearing it. Okay, uh, let's take a call from Mike in Etobicoke. Hi, Mike. Hi, hi. Interesting to- topic. I've got three quick points. I kind of wonder what does what does the the government or the health officials know about this virus that they're not really uh, telling us? In other words, you know, does this virus have the ability to uh, to mutate? And uh, because you notice that the people in these homes are, uh, the, the senior homes are, are getting sick. And I noticed that the youth, when I, for example, when I go grocery shopping once a week, I noticed that, that the youth that work there, they seem to be unaware. They don't pay any attention to distancing or anything. They, they just seem to be quite unaware. But I guess I just wanted to know, to know um, what's yeah. your question, Mike? Yeah, I, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought here. Um, so much, so much going on. Yep, so much, so much going on. Um, uh, so uh, I don't know that they're telling us uh, that they're hiding a lot of information, but, uh, you know, it's a developing situation. Thanks for your call. Uh, do you think that there is information that the government is withholding or it's just uh, a confusing situation where we're learning stuff all the time? Well, this is Colin. I'll I'll answer that. Um, Where we learn about the virus is actually not from government, but from scientists, science labs. And the scientists, scientists don't work for government. So governments actually really can't, uh, in the Western world, cannot actually prevent that kind of knowledge from from seeping out. It's 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 certainly out there. But the fact of the matter is, the most common answer to questions about the virus is we don't know yet. 
And that's not very comforting. And, you know, that's, I think, can help people feel anxious that maybe there is a story they don't know about. Dr. Vaisman, do you think that the result of these big protests that we saw on the weekend will be the seeding of another wave? Uh, There's no doubt that it will contribute to cases developing questions whether we can fully attribute a second wave to just the protest alone. There were quite many of them across Canada and several thousand people attended some of them. Uh, So it's not clear that it would lead to an an entire wave. Uh, Also, a wave might be localized to some population or it might be localized to some region or some city. But there's no doubt that there will be cases that result uh, from the protest there, even from the footage that we saw from the prime minister in the environment where the protests were going on there, there was basically people standing shoulder to shoulder, very close to one another. So it wouldn't take very much for there to be some transmission. The only uh, thing that's positive about that is that transmission is less likely to occur in open spaces than it is to occur in, in indoor areas. I mean, we know that the majority of outbreaks occurred in indoor areas rather than out, outdoor areas. And we also learned that recently, at least the numbers here, more young people are being infected. Uh, is that a is that a positive sign that we're getting rid of the terrible situation in long-term care, Dr. Furness? I think long-term care continues to be a tinderbox, and the province announcing that they'd sort of wrapped up the offensive and the battle had been won, I, I think that's actually the wrong mental model. You really need to stay vigilant there, no question. Um, it's it's the, the, the big thing, though, is not, in my mind, is not the number of cases or even the demographics. The big thing that we have to keep an eye on is how many new cases are we getting don't know the attribution. We don't know where it's from. That's the that's the big that's the big worry in my mind. Uh huh. And we have quite a number of those cases, right? That's the problem. And part of it is bad record keeping in Ontario. Part of it is that we have not been doing effective contact tracing. And part of it is that yes, there's community spread, and we should be very concerned. Uh huh. Do you uh, do you have confidence, Doctor Vaisman, that that problem is going to be fixed? Jane Philpot was just appointed to help with the administration and the reporting. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's a good question. There, there's some signs there's, there's positive things going on. There's a lot of pressure from public health officials, from um, various physicians who work in the area to put pressure on the government to actually uh, change the way that they're doing things. Some other methods are quite archaic, like using fax machines or you know phone calls instead of using more advanced ways of doing contact tracing. So. It's. I think change will happen. It's just a question of how long it will take. Some provinces are better at doing it than others. This has been a wake-up call, of course, for, for all of it to be uh, you know, changed and improved for the better. Now that the numbers are coming, coming down, it should be more manageable. It should give them a, some time to fix this and to get better at it for the inevitable second wave that will occur who knows when, but at the very least in the fall, we expect there to be another round of, of covid Okay, we are basically out of time, uh, so I'll give you each uh, 20 seconds. Colin Furness, what would you like to leave us with as we head into more reopening? Very simply, you can lock people down to get rid of the pandemic, or you can test your way out of it. You can do lots of testing or lockdown. Ontario hasn't done a great job at either. Now that we're loosening up, we need to increase our testing capacity like an order of magnitude. That's urgent now. Dr. Vaisman? 
I think the public needs to realize that just because things are opening up doesn't mean the threat is gone. They need to maintain all the things that we've been discussing all these months, the hand hygiene, keeping distance, the wearing the mask indoors, and also being vigilant about symptoms that, that really won't end anytime soon. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Alon Weisman and Colin Furness. Really appreciate your insights into this. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.